Hello there, welcome to Jubes and Curth, the podcast of my show on GB News. My name's Michelle Jubery, and you can catch me live every weekday evening from 6 till 7pm. But worry not, if you miss it, you can catch up here after every show. So let's do it. Welcome to Jubes and Curth. Well, hello there. It's six o'clock. I'm Michelle Jubry, and this is Jubes and Co., the show where we'll get into some of the things that have got you talking today. Now, we've had weeks, haven't we? Of, is he going to do it? Isn't he going to do it? Windfall this, windfall that. Well, we know where we stand. Rishi has shown his cards and a bailout package has been announced. I want to be uh, looking at that. But more importantly, I want to ask you, what do you think about it? Has he done enough? Are you satisfied? Are you happy? Uh, Should he have done more? Or has he even gone too far and done too much? And will there always be some people that are just never happy, no matter what the government do? Moving on from that, there's been a warning that ambulances are approaching a titanic moment that could stop them responding to 999 calls within weeks. What is the answer to all of this? And are you worried about it? If you uh, needed to dial 999, how would you feel? Would you feel that you're going to get an ambulance? Or would you be more tempted to kind of try your luck with a taxi? And do you have children? If not, nieces, nephews, godchildren. Do you know what they are being taught in school when it comes to sex, relationships and gender? And crucially, by whom? Keeping me company until 7 o'clock tonight, my panel. We've got a Head of Lifestyle Economics at the Institute of Economic Affairs, Christopher Snowden, author and academic, Joanna Williams, and environmental policy researcher, Laurie Laybon. Good evening to you three. And you know the drill uh, by now, don't you, I'm sure? It's not just about us, it's about you as well. What's on your mind tonight? Get in touch with me, gbviews at gbnews.uk. You can tweet me at Michelle Jubes or at gbnews. Uh, don't forget, if you haven't already, you can subscribe to us on YouTube, download our app, our podcast, and as I always say, we're on the radio as well. You see, I do love a little bit of modern technology. If you're sitting there thinking to yourself, I like Michelle, but I need to go to the shop, as I always say, worry not, take me with you. Go into your car, DAB Plus, uh, look under the letter G, and there we are. It's magic. Modern technology, eh? You love it. Um, Right, what was I just about to say to you? I was just about to go into a very elaborate story uh, about a completely random topic, Christopher, and I think, do you know what? I'm not going to. I'm going to get back on track and do to the, st- the top story, which is all about the bailout. Um, did you see it? Have you been following the kind of ups and downs about windfall taxes? Should we have one? Shouldn't we have one? Uh, is the government doing enough to help us at the moment? Should they be doing more? If so, what more? And around and around it's gone, hasn't it, now for weeks. And we finally have got some answers and a bit of an end to it because it's a yes to a windfall tax. This is going to help pay for a £15 billion uh, support package that uh, Rishi Sunak has announced. You've just been hearing all about the detail of that in the news item. And I've got a poll running, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, on Twitter, if that's your thing, GB News. I'm asking you, do you think Rishi Sunak has done enough? Did you want to see him doing more? I'll start with you, Christopher. Um, what do you think to Rishi's announcements today? Enough? Too much? Uh, what about the windfall tax? There's a lot to unpick. Your thoughts? There is, indeed. I mean, Rishi, I think, has realised that he was very popular two years ago when he was giving people lots of free money, mm. and uh, he wasn't so popular when he started putting up taxes to pay for the debt. So he's gone back to giving people free money, and that's been the policy, really, of the government, various governments, for about 15 years. Every time you have a problem, whether it's a financial crisis or Brexit or COVID, you print and borrow 
vast sums of money. And as a direct result of that, particularly the money, enormous amount of money printing during COVID, mm-hmm. we have very high inflation. The priority for the country has to, get, has to be to get inflation down. There are no easy solutions at this point. Everything you do is, is painful. If you just let it ride, then people have the cost of living crisis. Um, I mean, they're going to have that anyway, realistically. Uh, I think that if you're going to have a windfall tax, he's done it about as well as you could do because he's given the companies a big incentive to, in, to invest. And the danger with windfall taxes, you put, put off investment. But the windfall tax is only going to raise £5 billion by the government's yeah. own estimates. In practice, I don't think it'll even raise that because they will put billions into investment. And the whole package actually is worth £37 billion. So essentially, we've got a big problem, which is high inflation, and we're going to dump another £37 billion into the economy. Will that lead to more inflation is the, the big danger. Uh, insofar as we're giving it to people on low incomes, probably not, because they'll spend their money on the gas and electricity, you would think. Why we're giving £400 to every single household in the country, I have no idea. This should be means-tested. This is just a, a, a giveaway. And there is a real danger of, of that um, causing inflation. So but it's going to I, am be, I thought it was going to be credited to their um, account, the energy accounts. I didn't think we were just going to give them free money. My understanding is we're giving them free money. And so Are we have we? to hope that they're going to spend it on their energy. Right, I'm going to get someone to check that while we're talking because my yeah, understanding, don't. and I am, well, that would be good I am do frequently that. wrong, let's be honest about this. So there's a strong possibility that I'm indeed wrong now. But I thought it was being credited back to the energy. Well, if that's right, then fair, fair enough. I mean, that would be more, a more sensible way to do it, absolutely. But either way, for middle-class families who don't really need this money, um, they're, they're, OK, they're not going to spend £400 the, the, the £400 is going to go on their, their gas bill or whatever, they're still going to have another £400 to spend, mm. which they wouldn't do otherwise. We are expanding the money supply, having massively expanded during COVID. That causes inflation. We're not going to get inflation down by dishing out more money. And I think actually the real danger, beyond, above and beyond all that, is it's only May, right? This cost of living crisis has barely begun, certainly mm. in terms of people heating their, their homes. Is the government just going to give in to everybody who puts a hand out? Are we going to be giving 10% pay rises to the rail workers, for example, for everybody in the National Health Service? We, they probably will. They seem to very quickly give in uh, to anybody who, who has any kind of sob story. Well, Donald says, this is all madness, Michelle. The Tories have lost my vert. Mm. Laurie, where do you stand on it all? I think um, it's welcome that he's taking, uh, he's, he's making more action. The, the actions that he announced in the past were a bit of a damp squib. It felt a little bit like at the very early stages of COVID, before lockdowns and things, where he did this budget. And we all thought, hang on a minute, that doesn't seem to be proportionate to the scale of the challenge. So I think it's good that there's more money. I, th- I think it is a, an energy bill discount of £400 this October, but in addition, a payment of £650. Um, which will be paid through means-tested benefits to 8 million households, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, part of this inflation is something that's come externally, right? It's the costs of energy, food and other things that have been stimulated by Putin's invasion of Ukraine, by the ongoing effects of COVID-19, if we're, if we're talking about f- food as well, by the increasing impacts of the climate crisis. And households are going to need that kind of support. This is another shock that's hit hit the country. And... One of the things I think beyond providing people with more support, which is needed, and we've got to understand that that support is coming on the backdrop of a history in which money's been taken away from people's benefits. It's kind of making up for some of the damage that's already done in the past. We've got to break this link what between... What money's been taken away? As in, as in the, the, the down rating of benefits and so on in the past right. has, has damaged the safety net system in the UK. So it's, it's kind of, you know, trying to 
edge towards repairing some of that, and I don't think it goes far enough. But we've got to make this break between being vulnerable to some of these shocks that come from outside. Energy prices in particular, we're, we're exposed to that because we have some of the least insulated buildings, stocks um, in, in Europe, say, in this country. And we've got to invest some of this money from wherever it comes from into insulating those homes so we're not as exposed to these huge swings in energy prices and other things. Well, just before I bring Joanna in, um, we speak about this kind of insulation uh, thing often. Uh, we, we all are very familiar, Laurie, with the protesters and stuff like that. And people will always write in and say, why is it a government's responsibility to insulate somebody's private home? Why isn't it the private homeowner's responsibility? Why does everyone want the government to do absolutely everything? Because, well, sure, and in some ways it is, right? But the as a tool of policy... Like, what's the point in government, right? It's this big institution that can do things at the scale of a society. And those protesters you mentioned, they were largely focusing on the climate crisis and that's something that needs to be focused on. In the case of, say, Putin's war, you know, we, we, can, we can better isolate Putin by insulating homes. And if, a, if the government, government can come but along we and say... It, but we hardly even rely on Russia for our oil and gas. We yeah, get a small percentage. Sure. If you're, if you're Germany, you've got a very high percentage and it's more in those frames. But it's a general process of us becoming less dependent on or less exposed to these kind of shocks. Because Putin's invasion, reliance on Russian oil and gas is one thing. It generally is creating higher prices across all energy markets. So if we're using less energy through more insulated homes, that's a good thing. I think it's totally proportionate in that context for government to step in and help accelerate the yeah. process of insulation. Well, Joanna, Peter said, Jubes, Joanna Williams is back. I thought you'd sacked her. <laughs> She's the best guest on GB News. No, we didn't sack her. She's been cheating on me. You've been doing <laughs> breakfast instead, you little minx. Right. Uh, what's your thought on all this? Well, I agree with what Christopher is saying, that the government has been relying on printing money for decades now. But I think it is worth pausing and just reflecting for a moment at how completely unprecedented this is, um, that the government is making... I've already had £150 this year as a rebate off my council tax. I'm going to be getting £400, it seems, in, in October off my fuel bills. I'm not complaining. I'm feeling the squeeze financially. There's certainly a few more days at the end of each month now to try and that I'm noticing in my when I go to check my bank balance. Um, but, you know, I've got a middle class professional job. So has my husband. It's absolutely shocking that we are being given these state subsidies and even more shocking that we're in a position where we're welcoming these state subsidies because the cost of living crisis is so extreme. I think COVID has made us very kind of reliant on, on these state handouts or, or thinking that these state handouts are kind of normal that we should get this. But really, it's a, it's a drop in the ocean. It's no solution to the long-term economic problems that, are in, that we were facing in this country. Do you think there should have been some form of opt-out then? So if someone's financially comfortable, instead of everyone getting um, this help, do you reckon there should have been some mechanism? Um, and OK, yeah, I've not thought through it enough to decide what that is, but for a mechanism for people to be able to say, actually, I don't need this. Uh, not really. I mean, potentially, yes, if people don't need it, then they should... Um, put it back. But more the point I'm making is that we're in such a dire economic situation that even kind of middle class people on good incomes are needing this money. We are noticing the food bills going up, the fuel bills going up. And that's what's shocking. That's what's really terrible, that a good income to people full time employed is no longer good enough to provide a decent standard of living. And, and what we've got to do, I think, as a country is really face up to that big economic 
economic problem, the lack of productivity, the lack of economic growth. And unfortunately, Laurie, you know, it's laughable to think that this can be solved by us better insulating our houses. We need to look at actually producing more power, cheaper power, like major changes we can make to economic productivity in this country. We should have been building nuclear power stations two, three, four decades ago. We need to now be drilling North Sea oil. We need to be fracking and producing gas. We need major inputs into the economy to give the the whole economy a shock to boost productivity, to boost wealth, so that people don't have to be reliant on state handouts just to see them through. Um, from one month to the next. That's what's really shocking. Do you want to respond to that? If we insulate homes, we'll, we'll, lose, we'll use less energy. So we'll be exposed to less of these energy price fluctuations. But, also, but, if we fract, that, that, that gas will be sold on what are not just the domestic markets, but the markets that are bigger than that. So we could, if we nationalise the energy industry in the UK and then frack the gas, we might be able to keep it in the UK itself. So maybe, you know, maybe we should nationalise the entire why do you, industry. Why do you, if you want to get involved with fracking, why do you need the government to nationalise that? Because the, the market is not just within the UK. So when you, when, let's say we, we went and fracked, we got some gas, which is very difficult to do in this country, um, and even if the local people wanted it, which they don't, um, and even if it didn't have environmental impacts, which it does, even if we got out of the ground, we would then be like, right, well, we want to make some money out of this, so we'll sell it to the highest bidder, we'll sell it at the international price, which mm-hmm. means it's not going to stay in this country. Like, you can frack as much as you like in the UK, it's not going to stay in the country. It will be sold on international markets unless you nationalised the energy industry in the UK so it had no choice but to remain in this country, right? And then even then, all that effort and money and time, you could have insulated the housing stock in the UK so we were less dependent on these Well, Nick just emailed prices. me saying, Michelle, I've had my home insulated and now he says it's too warm. So now <laughs> it is. Uh, that's, you can see that. I'm telling the truth. Yeah, that's what I. Nick has said. Um, Chris, a lot of people are agreeing with you, what you've said as well in terms of their concerns about this kind of um, making the inflation situation worse. And we've just been mentioning the North Sea situation there. BP had previously said about windfall tax, that actually if there was a windfall uh, levy, they would still stick with their investment. Mm. Well, what I found interesting today uh, is that BP kind of came out and said, uh, today's announcement is not for a one-off tax. It is a multi-year proposal. Naturally, we now need to look at the impact of the new levy and the tax relief on our North Sea investment plan. So something that sounded like it was pretty dead set before is now potentially up for uh, a question. Which doesn't surprise me, because I've always had a little bit of a concern. I see the logic of why people want windfall taxes, but it makes me slightly concerned that you've now changed the goalposts massively in this country when it comes to the economy, because previously you knew when you started your game of football, you knew the rules, and now what we've basically said is, don't worry about those rules... If you do well or and or we decide, actually, and I like a little bit of that, you give me some of that, we will. And if I was a business owner thinking, right, where shall I invest? Where shall I start a new business? That would make me slightly apprehensive about doing business here. Well, that, that is the traditional worry about windfall taxes. And I think it's well-founded in some instances. I think it's probably less well-founded in this particular instance because it's considered our gas, our oil, right? It's in the, it's in the North Sea. And, you know, governments, including Margaret Thatcher's, have done windfall taxes 
before. I mean, I don't know what to make of BP's own official statements. I think they need to work on their comms because the, the guy who runs it was a couple of months ago saying that BP is a cash machine. This is fantastic. Mm, because, he did you know, say that. The, the, the war had begun in Ukraine. And then a couple of weeks ago, he was saying, we, we're quite happy with windfall tax. won't make any difference to us. And now he's saying it's a terrible idea. I don't know. But I but do I know... Now it's, it's now become clear it's a multi-year. So what we're saying gonna be, five it's billion... Gonna be, it's going to be at least three years, I think. And it'll end when oil prices and gas prices go back to normal, whatever they are. Mm, whatever normal is. But also, when you are you in favour of windfall taxes? Yeah, I think it's a proportionate thing at the moment. I think we have to remember that the top rate of tax on North Sea oil and gas in 2015 was much higher than Rishi Sunak just made it. It was even higher in 2014. We also have to remember that something like £10 billion of the profits that BP, Shell maybe made recently, they, they used to buy their own shares back instead of investing. Yeah, buybacks. To, to, buybacks are quite common, but would you... It, it, but it just, it's about raising, the, sorry, about raising the price of the... You know, that's not... You can't sit there and be like, well, we may not invest when you're using that money to artificially inflate the price. But would you... Where do you draw the line, then, when it comes to windfall taxes? Because in this instance, for example, we're talking about energy, so that's gone up, and what people are saying is you've had an unintended windfall. You didn't really earn this. It's global um, factors that have given you this increase, mm -hmm. so that's... We're going to take it, 25% of it anyway. Um, where do you draw the line then? Pharmaceutical companies, they've had a big uh, boost from nothing that they've actually done in many cases. Delivery companies, we've now got this massive war in Ukraine. We've got all of these uh, companies that'll be manufacturing weapons, armoury, God only knows what. They will have a massive boost in their mm. profit. So where do we draw the line? Um, I, well, yeah, I mean, a big question is how much we accept uh, very profitable industries imposing these big markups of making their prices higher to exploit the current moment, to, to, to engage in profiteering, right? Like, for example, the four agribusinesses that, that control about 90% of the, of the food system are charging not just the prices of how much... But prices have been raised by how much things are costing, and then they're raising the price above that as well, right? So I think that is an open question. Right now, we're focusing on oil and gas. I don't think we need to impose a general idea of windfall taxes on, onto things. And I, I think that... It's proportionate to do that in the current situation. These guys have expected that for a long time. You see that in the share price that has, in fact, gone up, as we saw in the news segment there. This was internalised for a long time. You know, I agree the comms are messy, partly because they've known about it for a long time. They knew it was going to happen. They actually have enjoyed a period of many years where they paid way less tax than they have. They've had a very generous tax and, and subsidy regime in the UK, one of the most beneficial in the world for oil and gas. You know, this was going to happen. They've internalised it, and I think it's But good. I think, if I may say so, the important thing to remember is that this is... is it's a window dressing to try and make it look like this is costing. We're talking about £37 billion, an absolute maximum of £5 billion we're going to get per year from the uh, windfall tax. The real tax rise is going to be in, down the line when we're all having to pay back money that we've all been given. It's just literally in one pocket out the other, plus interest. And the Bank of England's not printing any more money now. Finally got the message, and that's inflationary. So we're borrowing money on international markets. Inflation's at 9%. You think people are going to be lending us money at these interest rates? Mm -hmm. It won't be. And then don't forget, of course, we've got to pay back our monumental national debt, which is all well and good we'll when you've got... We'll never pay that back, but we'll be paying the interest rate. Yeah, that's what I mean. That When your base rates are where they have been, that's one thing. When they go up, it's a whole different thing altogether. Jenny on Twitter says, in 1975, Michelle, interest rates went up to 17%. Our mortgage payment went up by 25%. She says the Labour government did nothing in mitigation. We were just expected to suck it up. Trevor says, I had to suck it up in the 80s. Um, mortgage rates again, he's saying 16%. I had one wage, two young children, and I just simply had to 
to do without. I didn't ask the government for help. Uh, why would I? That's what he asked. That's what he's asking. Uh, Elena says Sunak has hinted that he will go even further, and they appreciate at least that he is now doing something. Uh, my favourite email, probably of all time, actually, comes from Nikki. He says, uh, Michelle, I've converted some workmates over from Sky News to GB News in particular. He says, Richard. Uh, who loves the show, and apparently he loves me and the way we present. And apparently, I don't know why, he loves the way I say, by the way. So, by the way, Nick and Richard, you've both got the same, the same surname, but you're not brothers, apparently. Um, lovely email, much appreciated. And by the way, it's time for a break. When we come back, um, got lots to talk to you about. I want to talk uh, about children. Do you know what they are being taught at schools when it comes to the whole kind of sex, gender, relationship and all that kind of stuff? And get this, ambulance bosses are warning that August is a tipping point when 999 calls can no longer be answered. We'll have that after the break. Coming up on The Mark Stein Show, the biggest threat to freedom of speech online. Toby Young will be here to discuss the growing calls to scrap the online safety bill as MPs plough ahead with plans to censor the internet. MP Kevin Hollinrake joins to discuss Home Office plans to allow up to 1,500 male migrants to roam free in Linton-on-Ouse if an asylum centre is placed there. Yasmin Mohammed will also be on hand to explain what it means for the small Yorkshire village and whether it poses risks to those living nearby. All that and more on The Mark Stein Show tonight from 8 o'clock. Hello there, welcome back with me, Michelle Dubry. Uh, keeping me company until 7 o'clock tonight, we've got the Head of Lifestyle Economics at the Institute of Economic Affairs, Christopher Snowden, author and academic, Joanna Williams, and environmental policy researcher, Laurie Leibon. Good evening to all of you as well, wherever you're joining us. You can get in touch with me, gbviews at gbnews.uk is the email, or you can tweet me at Michelle Jubes with any of your thoughts. Peter has been in touch today saying the announcement today was a missed opportunity, Michelle. What they should have done was to remove the green taxes, not be borrowing more money. And Martin says, Michelle, when are people going to start cutting their cloth? I am not middle class and I am not struggling. I just cut my cloth accordingly. Well, there you go. Let me know your thoughts on that last topic we've just been discussing, which is, is Rishi Sunak doing enough to help you? We've got a poll running on Twitter. It's about 50-50% at the moment um, split. Some of you think that he's doing enough and some of you think he is not doing enough. Can he ever do enough? Will anyone ever be happy? Sometimes I feel like they wouldn't. But if you're sitting there saying, yes, I'm happy, let me know. Right, Mark, August the 17th in your diary, little diary dates, because apparently that will be the day that you do not want to be calling an ambulance. The reason? Well, apparently a lack of beds available in hospitals is now reaching a tipping point. Ambulance services are already missing response targets, as we know. Um, and this is all about, basically, when, pa when patients arrive at the hospital in their ambulances, there's nowhere to put them, so they spend hours and hours just sitting in the back of the ambulance. And this prediction of a day of doom comes from the West Midlands Ambulance Service, who say it's much bigger than not just hitting, uh, or missing, should I say, their response targets. You know... I'll start with you on this, Laurie. Mm. This conversation, it, it's been going on for a very long time, hasn't it? 
NHS problems, ambulance problems, people not getting an ambulance. But there's something about this. I mean, I've got to say, personally, I find it a bit weird that someone's come out and put a particular date on it, so specifically August the 17th. This is when doomsday, basically, when it comes mm. to ambulances. But notwithstanding that, what do you think this What is the answer? Well, I think let, let's... I'm not, I'm not going to try and explain what this, this guy's saying because I'm not totally sure. He says that uh, around August 17th, um, it will be the date in which a third of our resource will be lost to delays. What I think is going on there is, is, is think of a hospital like a, a system where you flow water through it. If the beds fill up, then the ambulances can't take the patients to the beds, so the ambulances queue up, and then people are sitting in the ambulances and so on. And that's, that's what I think he's saying here. And I have a very close friend, actually, who works... Uh, who work for an ambulance service and, and experienced that a lot, where ambulances would queue back and we get mm. this horrendous situation where people were not getting the care that they needed, right? Um, I think we've got a, the immediate thing of the, the, the shock that COVID caused to the NHS as a system, how that led to huge spikes and people had been in hospital. It basically caused a massive amount of demand that the system couldn't take. We've got a longer-term problem of there having been underinvestment in certain areas. Beds is an example the number of beds was going down, 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 down at the point where COVID came and we really needed those beds. There's not been enough investment in nursing. There was a massive shortfall in nurses before COVID came along. We're not getting enough investment in GPs. We've got a, a low number of GPs across the country, which means that they're not able to properly triage, to properly sort of sort people at the beginning of the flow before they're then resorting to have to use ambulances. And then you say about beds, by the way, in COVID, I remember mm. those, what are they called, Nightingale things, hospitals that were set up with yeah. tonnes of beds, pretty much empty the whole but the, time. But this goes to the starting point, right? Like, in some ways, the Nightingale thing was just for show to kind of boost the morale of the country, I would say. Because what do you... Really? You, you so you're, telling, you're telling me that they sat there and thought, do you know what, I'm going to boost the morale of the country I by think that that building was, a hospital and keeping it empty. I think that was a, an unintended consequence. I think it was a case of saying, you know... The, the Chinese government, the, you know, China can respond in this way. Britain can also respond in a certain way. You've you got a bed, right? You need three things to help people in hospital, right? Roughly. Bed, the kit, ventilator, whatever, and the people. Very easy to get beds going. Kind of easy in some ways to get the ventilators going. Very hard to get the right people, particularly in the context of COVID. You have to have very specialised training to be a respiratory nurse, and you ideally need one-on-one -on -one care, one patient, one nurse, right? So in some ways, the Nightingale's are there to be like, whoa, the, the bed's bit, amazing. But the problem is that we reached COVID with a shortfall of something like 40,000 nurses at a moment where we really needed those nurses. So the NHS is suffering from that underinvestment. And then, of course, longer term problems like so-called non-communicative diseases, obesity, other lifestyle problems that we know are saturating the NHS. So this is a hugely complex thing that can of, cannot, of course, be dealt with with just some more funding. But in, in the case that we're seeing here, if, if this ambulance provider who we should you know, rely on to be talking about how severe the situation is, they need some immediate help to deal with some of that backlog and that the people here will be overworking. It's an exhausting, very tough situation to be in. We should be very thankful to those who are on that front line. And they do need some immediate support to help ease that pressure. But we need to deal with that chronic underinvestment. Mm. Someone just emailed in while you're talking saying, Oi, Michelle, tell me the name of this gorgeous man sitting to your right again who's talking. Get him back more often. Thank that you, is Laurie Leibon. There you go. We're making blush. And while he's recovering from that, Chris, where do you stand on this? Because often the answer comes back from people, doesn't it? More money, more investment, more money. What do you think? Is that just, is it the case of more money, more it's complex got so or what? Now it's, it's getting ridiculous. It's £230 billion of the NHS budget last year, plus another. 
40, 50 billion pounds on private health care. You know, if you look at it as a percentage of GDP, we're spending more than nearly any other country in the world now on health care. You cannot blame this on underfunding. It has been a deliberate decision, not just in the UK, but in the UK, in the last 35 years, we've, we've halved the number of hospital beds, despite the population rising significantly. Because a lot of very clever people who work in the health service decide, actually, we don't need beds, something as old-fashioned as beds, and we don't need people getting better. They can go home and get better. And... You know, you're quite right, obviously. What you need in hospital primarily, doctors and beds and equipment. And uh, we got about a third fewer doctors than comparable countries. Compared to the OECD, Club of Rich Countries, about a third fewer doctors, uh, half as many beds as we used to have, and far fewer beds than OECD countries. Mm. Um, it's an absolute scandal. And I just wonder, where is this money being spent? What's, what's, where's it going? We haven't got the doctors, we haven't got the beds, therefore we have massive waiting lists, one in nine people now. On a, on a waiting list, you've got this problem with the ambulances, and then people in the NHS will say, well, it's bed blockers. The real problem is people in, in, in bed not, not yeah, needing to be there. And that, there well, there is an issue with that, but what you could also do is have more beds, and then you could tolerate having 10% of your patients being bed blockers. But it's not the NHS's job. If someone's fit and well enough to go home... They've got go nowhere to, to go. The... It's a social care problem. Yeah, exactly, but it's not the NHS's mm. responsibility then to be almost like a daycare service for people, healthy, well people that have got nowhere well, no, of course it's not go. in an ideal world, but the fact is they haven't got anywhere else to go. Yet maybe we should be spending a bit more on, on social care. We're now being taxed for it, after all. Mm. But the bottom line is, and it's not just with this issue, it's with so many issues across the NHS, there are far too many chiefs, not enough Indians, and there's not enough hospital beds. Mm. Joanna? Yeah, I agree. I mean, this is not just an issue of money. I mean, the NHS has got such huge problems. And yet, for, for years, really, we've not discussed these problems. We went out and banged our saucepan lids and clapped for the NHS and kind of worshipped it without really getting to grips with what the problems are. Criticising the NHS was kind of a taboo that you weren't allowed to do. Um, I, I actually think the the specific problem in this case is the shortage of beds, but it, that's hugely contributed by um, by well people who could be discharged um, taking up beds in hospitals. And I think we, we do really need to look more closely at why people aren't being discharged. Um, and I mean, I agree with Christopher, one easy solution would be just to make more beds, you know, and have everybody who's got nowhere to go taking up a hospital bed. But actually, you know, people don't really want to be in hospital. I'm sure a lot of these well people want to be moving out, want to be getting on with their lives. So we need to look at why, why can't people move into care homes, for example. Um, was it a mistake to um, have the vaccine mandate for care home staff? Um, how many care home staff were, let, were lost to the profession at that point because they didn't want to have a COVID vaccine? Is that something that's worth revisiting? What about the pay for people who are working in care homes? Um, I'm sure for a lot of people who work in care homes, if they think they'd be paid more by working in a coffee shop or uh, working checkout in a supermarket, they're going to look at what's expected of them in a care home compared to what would be expected of them working in a supermarket and think, actually, I could earn more and have an easier job elsewhere. So perhaps we do need to look at paying people who work in care homes more, um, making it more, more incentives to create more care homes. I mean, you go back far enough in history and there were actually kind of special convalescent hospitals um, where I live. In, in Kent, you see on the coast, these kind of huge buildings that were once special places for people to go and convalesce. Perhaps it's worth bringing back something like that so you've got a halfway house between a kind of hospital and being released. 
But the, the point is, you know, as Christopher was saying, you've got so much money going into the kind of bureaucracy that we're not able to take the step back and actually look at um, providing these kind of solutions. Um, just, uh, Nick, he's just got in contact on Twitter saying, regarding the ambulance crisis you were talking about, Michelle, my lad has been trying to secure a place at university on a paramedics course. And he's not been able to get in yet because there's not enough places available. And this is a problem when we talk about staffing levels. Uh, you know, these people, there's a whole funnel of things that need to happen before we can even get someone onto that front line. But, Laurie, I wonder, do you think that we take caring uh, as seriously as we should as a profession in this country? Because if we all kind of concede that actually there's people that shouldn't be in hospital, that should be, say, for example, in a care setting, I know that the people that say I'm a you know, stay-at-home carer, the carer's allowance is a pittance. Um, I'll know that people will get in touch with me and say, I want to work in a care home, but the wage, uh, that's a pittance. Do you think we place enough respect on the role of being a carer? I think that people respect it. If you went up to anyone, they'd say, I absolutely respect that. But I, I don't think that is reflected in what has been invested in. I agree. I think, in effect, we don't respect them because there's not enough investment in caring, in, in social care. And I agree with what's being said down that end of the table. Let's be honest, like we've got a, a, a national sickness service probably that's about dealing with immediate acute instances of sickness. In some cases, there are some elements of excellence when it comes to dealing with, with um, various other things. But a national health service would make proper sense if it, if it had this deeper social care element to it. And we don't, you know, if we're talking underinvestment in the, the health service bit of it, we've had extraordinary underinvestment in effect in the social care part. I think there needs to be a, it doesn't make sense in the issue, you've got a national health and social care service as an overall package, and we move beyond the chaotic situation that we see with social care in the UK, privatised, highly expensive, you know, anyone who's had to pay for care, particularly, say, for elderly relatives who are, who are nearing the end of their lives. And it's astonishingly expensive. And you think, well, hang on a minute. The, the money's clearly not going on the wages of the staff who are hugely overworked. Many of those premises is clearly not going into the investments in the premises themselves. Where on earth is it going? It's seeping away in these exploitative companies who are able to run around in the sort of wild west of what, of what social care is like in this country. I think that's a bit harsh to say that all care homes um, are exploitative... I'm not, I didn't say they're exploitative. I'm saying that is that with all the huge amount of money that's taken that people have to pay because they want to care for their loved ones at certain points in their life, is it, is it going toward those people's care to the amount that we think it should? And I think that's a big open question. I think for me personally, we, we've, 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 we're very proud in this country of our, of our public healthcare system. I think we should continue to be proud of that. And I think that that principle should be extended to social care as well. We need to remember that the national insurance increase that we've all just um, taken as a, a further hit to our pay was sold to us as money that would go mm -hmm. towards social care. Well, of course, none of it's gone into social care so far. It's all gone no, into the NHS. No, but to be NHS. fair to them, what they did say is it was a social care increase, but initially, they did say to us, initially it would go on sorting some of the ills in the NHS, and then it was the more long... The NHS term. is never going to give up that money. Yeah, the, I think the NHS needs root and branch reform. And I'm always 
uh, wary people will write in and say, you know, that the nurses, the doctors and all those kind of people are doing their best and that we shouldn't be attacking them. And I completely agree. My mum and sister are both NHS nurses. So this is not about attacking the frontline staff and the job that they do. This is more about the institution, the framework, the processes and all the rest of it of the NHS. Stuart says, please, can you stop pontificating about underfunding of the NHS? Because you're completely ignoring the colossal waste and inefficiency that seems to go on unchecked in the NHS. I've got to say, Stuart, I agree with you and I personally wouldn't give the NHS a penny more until I'd done a proper root and branch reform of it and a review and try to make it more fit for purpose. But let me know what you think. GBviews at GBnews.uk or tweet me at Michelle Jubes or at GBnews. Going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll have some more of your thoughts. And I also want to ask you, do you know what children uh, are being taught about in school when it comes to uh, relationships, sex education, gender, all that kind of thing? Uh, and whose responsibility is it for defining what they should be taught and, uh, and doing the delivery? Is it teachers or is it outside agencies? We'll be looking at that in just a couple of minutes. Hello there, welcome back to Jubes & Co. with me, Michelle Jubery. Keeping me company until 7 o'clock tonight, my panel, Head of Lifestyle Economics at the Institute of Economic Affairs, Christopher Snowden, author and academic Joanna Williams, and environmental policy researcher, Laurie Laybourne. Good evening to you three, and good evening to you at home as well. Uh, lots of you getting in contact, saying that actually, you, many of you agree with me, by the way, about we perhaps don't uh, respect carers the way that we should. When I'm talking about respect them, I'm talking about the amount that we pay in things Things like carers' allowance, uh, wages, for example, in care homes. Um, please do keep your thoughts coming in. John has been saying, uh, Michelle, people have been talking about NHS reform for years. Uh, of course, that's what it needs, he says. There's way too many administration staff who are overpaid. Um, a big sentiment coming through again. I mean, lots of people absolutely respect um, the frontline care workers, um, but it's just kind of the management. I think that's where the feeling comes from, that that is where you need some reform. Anyway, sex education in secondary schools has been controversial, hasn't it, since it was made compulsory two years ago. But... What is actually being taught? Some schools are apparently using outside agencies to provide the teaching materials and there are concerns that some of these agencies could have a bit of a strange agenda, to put it mildly, about sex and gender. Some parents, uh, Joanna, are quite worried at the moment. Uh, there's been campaigns here, there and everywhere about this topic. Where do you stand on it? Well, I'm worried about it. And I think most parents... You're a parent as well. I am, I am. And I think parents should be worried about this. I think we're right to be worried about it. Um, not, of course, I don't think there's anything to worry about in terms of teaching sex to children. Um, the basic facts of life, I think all children need to know uh, how human reproduction occurs, how babies are made. I think that's absolutely crucial and a, a key part of biology. I mean, clearly that, that has to be on the biology curriculum. I think the bit that's controversial is the bit that came in two years ago legally and has been in place a bit longer than that informally and that's the teaching of relationships because to me it's impossible to teach relationships without imposing values and you can be an expert in biology you know you can have a degree in biology you can pass on your subject knowledge but no one is an expert in relationships so I'm not surprised really that teachers are quite nervous about getting involved with teaching this I mean how, how do you even go about teaching 
teaching relationships. It's a very, very difficult thing to teach. And, and you've got all these outside organizations then essentially preying on teachers' um, lack of confidence in this area, teachers' concerns, who are then being paid to come into schools and to promote their own agenda. And it's an agenda which is often led by campaigning groups who are promoting messages around gender fluidity, uh, gender, uh, the idea that gender is something on a spectrum, that, that is a feeling that you have inside, and it's the responsibility of children to choose their gender. Really backward and outdated ideas, like, you know, if you like wearing blue clothes and playing with trucks and football, then that means you must be a boy. Whereas if you like dressing in pink and playing with dolls, that means you must be a girl. Now, those are really stupid ideas and dangerous ideas, I think, to teach children. And, and we have seen a huge explosion in the number of children coming forward seeking medical help with their concerns over their gender identity. And it does strike me that this is one reason why this might be taking place. So I think parents are right to be worried because as far as I'm concerned, it, it's the parents' responsibility to teach children about relationships, not the school's responsibility. Yeah, but all I'd say to that, Chris, I mean, in an ideal world, I agree with a, a lot of what Joanna's just said, but unfortunately, in this society, there are a lot of wrong-uns that are parents that, in my view, have got no business actually having kids. They're not good parents. They don't have healthy uh, loving, respectful relationships at home. And then what happens often, domestic abuse cycles, whatever, people repeat often what they do see at home. So I think that in those kind of situations, I think it's quite helpful um, to treat, uh, to teach kind of things like relationship values in a classroom. No, I don't really agree. I didn't actually know it was compulsory. I mean, if anything, I think it should be banned. Um, sex education should just be half an hour in the biology curriculum. Birds and the bees, this is a condom, this is a pill, that's it, move on. Um, you know, I don't agree with teachers basic. being taught into kind of turning into social workers. People are always demanding this be put on a curriculum, this be put on a Let's have more climate change on the curriculum. Let's have insulation on the curriculum, whatever. You know, let's just have economics and maths and <laughs> English, you know. Teach kids something that, you know, they, they're not going to get anywhere else. They can learn about relationships and indeed sex from all, from all sorts of different places. And the fact that it's also led to a bunch of cranky, weirdo, pervert groups or whatever they are getting involved makes it even worse. Laurie? Um, I find this a really difficult one. I don't have kids um, and I therefore don't have much lived experience of what, what parents are, are going through here, though I can understand in some of the articles that we've seen today that there, there can be this concern about what children are being exposed to. Um, the, in the past, if we look, I like to, at these sort of issues that are often couched in terms of cultural wars, I like to look back in time at what things were like in the past, right? We, in this country didn't talk as openly as we probably should have about sex, about what that means, as in, you know, uh, sexual relations. And um, I think negative things came from that, sort of from repression of talking about these things. I think that we have got better at talking about uh, the fact that people are gay. Um, and there was a time where that was obviously um, a really contentious thing at school. Now we're in the situation where we are talking about the complexities of a new set of issues that people are wanting to talk about much more. I don't think we've got the kind of rules of engagement for how we do that yet. And I, I don't have <laughs> any sort of set of answers to what you do there, but I see stories like this time and time again where people are finding it extraordinarily difficult to be in these freebile atmospheres. Like we've got here in our pack a story from the Daily Mail about how intense some of these issues have got in school with kids shouting at each other, with parents finding it very difficult and so on. 
And I'm just really struck that we don't have the kind of set of shared norms that can recognise the differing views here, that the need to talk about sex and how people have sex and the different ways they have sex and the pitfalls of this and the risks and so on in a really... Uh, in a really in a way that deals with the complexities. I did some of this at school and was a sex ed trainer for a while, that we're able to talk about elements to do with gender and sex and identity but, that can recognise that, you know, some people may not feel comfortable with certain roles that have been assigned, but we've also got a shared language we can talk about this. I can't necessarily offer any particular, you know, silver bullets on this, but I'm just constantly aware that we haven't got a shared sort of set of rules of engagement and norms in this country around these issues. Mm. It's really difficult. But that, that's exactly why we don't have these shared norms in the classroom, because we don't have these shared norms in society more broadly, because there isn't a textbook right and wrong as to how to conduct a relationship. I mean, this, this depends upon your own sense of morality. Um, perhaps you're, it might be influenced by your religion. It might be influenced by the context, by the um, community that you live in. Mm. And the idea that there's black and white rules, I mean, obviously, short of, uh, don't uh, beat somebody up, you know, don't hit people. You could say, you could stand in a classroom and say, now kids, when you grow up and you make a relationship with someone, be kind, be nice. But actually relationships are caught, not taught. You know, the, the morality of how we conduct our lives is not something that you can learn in a classroom kind of making notes. Well, Tony has emailed in saying, Michelle, my daughter is a teacher and she had to show a primary school girl how to put sanitary wear on because her mother simply told her the teacher would help her. Whatever next, he asked. I completely agree. And this is one of my concerns in life. There are too many people that are not good parents. And if you're a good parent, then that's brilliant. You're going to help your child, teach your child. But what about the people that aren't? And if they don't get taught right from wrong and good and bad and all that kind of stuff at home, then where do they get taught? And people will say, well, it's not the teacher's responsibility. But if, it's, if they don't get taught this stuff, then it becomes uh, the problem of all of society. Um, Hamble, by the way, you make a very good point. Uh, patients, going back to the NHS thing, why don't we charge patients the deposit for attending um, accident and emergency, which they'll only get back if they have an actual emergency. That would keep the time wasters at bay. I like that idea. I wish I'd come up with it myself. By the way, Nigel asks, is Michelle any relation to Michael Dubery? No, I am not. <laughs> anyway, that is all we've got time for. So on that note, I shall leave it there. You lot have yourself a wonderful night. I'll see you tomorrow at the same time. Nigel Fry is up next. Hello, Alex Deacon here with your latest weather updates. The skies will clear a little overnight, which should allow a bit more sunshine for most of us tomorrow, but it will also allow temperatures to fall, so a little fresh first thing on Friday morning. Here's the bigger picture. High pressure to the south, low pressure to the north in between. A fair few weather fronts drifting across the country. They've been bringing a lot of clouds today. This one is edging away to the south, bringing drizzly conditions and a lot of mist across the southwest, but otherwise pulling away, allowing breaks in the cloud to allow it to turn quite chilly. We will keep showers coming into northern and western parts of Scotland overnight and a fairly brisk wind here. Temperatures dropping where we've got the clear skies and lighter winds across the heart of the country down to single figures. Not far freezing in some rural spots. So a chilly start to Friday, but by and large, a fine day to come for most of us. Still some showers across Scotland, mostly north of the central belt. And even here, they will tend to ease through the day, but still a few heavy ones possible. From the central belt southwards, then, it's looking mostly dry, fine with good spells of sunshine. A warmer feel as well, certainly in the south, 21 maybe 22 Celsius. 
during Friday evening. Temperatures will drop quite sharply. The showers, though, will continue to fade from northern Scotland, so for most it's going to be dry and fine with clear skies as we head into the weekend. That's going to, again, allow things to be quite chilly on Saturday morning, but most of us will have a fine, bright blue sky day on Saturday. Certainly lots of sunshine in the morning. The cloud will bubble up a little through the day. Small chance of a few showers in northeast Scotland. Very slim chance of a shower over eastern England uh, as well. But I say for the vast majority, it's dry and bright on Saturday. Temperatures not spectacular, but feeling pleasant in the sunshine. Quite a cool feel again in the northeast with a fairly brisk wind. And uh, for most of us, Sunday will be the cloudier day of the two this weekend and feeling cooler as well. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to Tubes and Co. the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you will never miss an episode. And if you've enjoyed it, leave us a nice comment. I'll see you next time. Thank you.